Man, an interesting day uh, for us. Number one, we all lost an hour of sleep. You know, there's that. I'm hoping that Congress and Senate and all, whoever the people are in charge that make our watches are going to decide that this is no longer needed. That'll be great. Um, And also, uh, I do feel like this side of the room is going to tip over at one point. If we were on a boat, things would be really, really bad. I don't know. At the Old Cigar Warehouse, when we were there for so long, there were some cold seats and some hot seats, and people would avoid those kind of in the middle. We don't have that going on here, but I'm, I'm grateful you guys came. I'm glad you guys came, too, and you just like people more. I don't know what it is. These are our extroverts, introverts. We're good with that. I'd probably be sitting over here, um, and that's, that's all right. Uh, but also, too, like we have been in the Book of Mark for 18 months, and today uh, we are wrapping it up, which is, is crazy. It's probably our longest series to date uh, in our 13 years as a church, um, and, and it's been fun. And so just kind of looking forward, what we will do is, uh, we'll kind of have some kind of one-off kind of a deals over the next few weeks, and we'll go through Easter, um, and then we're going to start like a small series, which is odd for me. I'm not a topical kind of guy. Like we, we generally tackle and say in a book, but we're going to talk about like the kingdom and money, like how God thinks about money. But I want to go ahead and preface that by saying we're not asking you for money. This is not, I think a lot of times when churches do a series on money, it's like a fundraiser. We're not doing that. Um, God's been incredibly gracious to us, and, and people are faithful and have given to us, and we've seen God bless like crazy, and we, we, we've never really had to ask for money. If you'd like to talk about money and how we use it and how we get it and all that kind of stuff, we'd love to talk to you. There's also a box back there. It's a little wooden box, and you can even drop money in that if you want to. I think 97.8% of our people give online, and that's fine too. Um, but anyway, we will do a series of money, and then we'll jump back in to kind of how we normally function and, and walk through a book together for a while. It probably won't be 18 months, um, but it'll be good. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in 15 through the end of this book. Um, And I will tell you there's even a statement that needs to go along with with the end of this book. Uh, Last week, we actually looked at the crucifixion, and we talked about what the crucifixion means to us and some things that we need to see and uh, just what this curtain being torn means and even the centurion statement. So if you missed last week, go back and listen to that. Um, Today, we're going to look at what occurs like after like he gave up his last breath, and, and what occurred there. Um, and I will go ahead and tell you, like in the, the course of reading the Gospels, Mark is unique in a lot of ways. All the Gospels are unique, and they're interesting in their own way. Uh, but Mark ends in a very abrupt manner, for the most part, um, because Mark's Gospel actually ends in verse 8. Uh, but if you, have, if you have an ESV, or you have a King James, or you have a couple other different translations, you're going to see some other verses after that. But most of them will have a footnote attached. And so what actually happened is Mark's gospel uh, ended at verse 8. He didn't call it verse 8. He just called it the end of his book. Uh, Later scribes and such attached verse 8 to it. But then later, probably about 150, 200 years, we don't know the exact time, some scribes decided to add some things because they felt like his gospel ended rather abruptly. They'd been able to see Matthew and Luke, and they'd been able to see John as well. And they were like, well, Mark didn't include some of these things, so we're just going to stick them in there. And so from our earliest English translations in the 14, 15, 1600s, um, they were working from manuscripts that came from around the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, and so they were included. But then later, uh, in this little place called Qumran, there were some caves there. We uncovered some things called the Dead Sea Scrolls in some jars, and they were well-preserved amongst some other resources that we had found in the 20th century. We go back and we're able to see manuscripts from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, 2nd and 3rd mainly, and we see that this part that had been added to the end of Mark had been added to the end of Mark. And so when you get there, we're going to stop at verse 8. 
If you would like to talk about verses 9 through the end, I'll be glad to talk to you about a few of those things. But there's several things in verses 9 through the end that point to the fact that it probably didn't belong there. There's, some, some, there, there's several things that we can talk about, and that's okay. Um, and for the most part, if you read verses 9 through the end, they're not going to contradict the rest of the story. There are a couple lines in there that don't quite match up with the, with the full story of Scripture and with the full story of the resurrection. But for the most part, they're not bad, but here's what we do know. They most likely were not, like 99.9% chance, they were not in the earliest manuscripts or Mark's uh, written gospel. So we're going to stop at verse 8. And so, again, if you want to talk through a little bit more of that, uh, feel free to talk to me. And I'll even, I'll even give you my opinion, too, as to why I think he stopped at verse 8. Because a lot of people have struggled. They're like, why did he end so abruptly? Well, Mark is, he's abrupt. And like if we read Mark, like Mark is a factual driven guy. Like that's the way that he writes. And, and there's a lot of details that he doesn't include that other gospel writers include. There's some that he includes that they don't. But, but anyway, we'll get to that in just a minute. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to read uh, verses 42 through 16.8. And then we'll, we'll talk about that a bit. By the way, I'm Matthew. If I haven't got to meet you, um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm excited to, to wrap this up today. It's been fun. Um, but anyway, here we go. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for a gospel that we can trust. Thank you for your word that you wrote to us so that we may know you, so that we can make you known. Um, and God, thank you for sending the Jesus that we need. Um, God, thank you that your son uh, was exactly uh, what we needed that we could not provide for ourselves. Thank you that his life, his death, his resurrection, his resurrection and his words uh, lead us to salvation. God, thank you for granting us access by faith, um, given according to your rich grace. Uh, God, as we read your word today, I pray that we read it well, that we do not add anything or take anything away, um, and that your spirit speaks loudly to us about what we need to do in light of Scripture, who we need to be in light of your salvation, and God, how then we should live as a result of all those things. Thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we concluded last week um, basically with the centurion looking on at Jesus. And after seeing the way that he died, the way that he carried himself, he said, this really was the Son of God. And, and we talked about the fact that if a centurion can see it, the man who was likely beating Jesus, possibly nailing him to the cross, can see the authenticity, the truth, uh, the true being of Jesus, then, then pretty much anyone can. And we also made a statement about the women being included there. We're going to make another one today. We're not being sexist. We're going to, we're going to talk about the culture of this and why it's there, why it's important. Um, but again, if you missed that, go back. And today we find uh, Jesus is being buried and Jesus being resurrected. And so let's start in verse 42, read through uh, the end of chapter 15, and then we'll get to 16 in a minute. It says, When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, was, he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And so at the end of this, uh, he, had, he had died on the cross. And, and to be honest, he died quicker than most people died during crucifixion. But it's very likely that he had been punished and beaten extensively 
far more than normal before he had made it to the cross as well. Like he had been enduring uh, torture and beatings and scourgings and all of those things well before he made it to the cross. As a matter of fact, he couldn't carry the cross, the cross member of the cross, the rest of the way. Someone had to be drafted, asked really nicely, of course, to carry the cross the rest of the way for him. And so many times crucifixions, someone could linger for two to three days hanging on the cross. If they were in perfect health before they were nailed to a cross or tied to the cross, they could, they could take two to three days to suffocate and die. Uh, but Jesus died uh, by, by the end of that day, before the end of that day, and he, he was done. And it's so much so that Pilate was a bit surprised when this man named Joseph came and asked him for his body. Joseph was what we know by reading the rest of the Gospels and what we can know by here, a couple of things. Uh, we can know that Joseph was a man of wealth. He wasn't just a normal guy. Um, he had likely just purchased a family grave plot. You know, I don't remember, like, when we used to have landlines, I remember my parents turning those calls away when people would call and try to sell you, like, sell you a grave. Like, and it's really weird. Like, uh, I still find the practice of how we bury people in the United States really, really strange, um, that you buy a piece of property to bury your loved ones in so that you can go and visit their bodies for lifelong. I'm just saying, for me, just sprinkle me in a river. We're going to be fine. Um, but either way, and I don't want my, parent, my family to spend all that money on a really nice box. And anyway, it's just really weird. I'm getting a new body. Praise God. But so anyway, long story short, this guy, he had already purchased uh, a family grave kind of a deal. But it was, it was a hole, you know, dug out from a rock, and there would be a stone laid in it. And most of the time what would happen is a body would be taken to this burial place, so to speak, and they would be laid there. They would be wrapped in cloths. They would be anointed with ointments and spices until they decomposed all the way to bones. And then someone would go in, take their bones, and put their bones in a box. And they'd put the box in the corner. Next family member, they would die. They would do the same thing until this hole was filled with boxes of bones, Okay lovely. Your family gets to live together in bony eternity. That's awesome. But that's what they would do. And so that's what they did with Jesus. And so, uh, but Jesus didn't have a grave. Jesus wasn't a man of wealth. Jesus didn't have any of those things. And so Joseph, being a man of wealth, a man of prominence, he was also a man on the council, part of the Sanhedrin, which is really, really interesting. Um, He went to Pilate and he said, Jesus is dead. Uh, May I take care of his body? May I take the corpse? And so as a sign of respect, he goes and acquires Jesus' body. As a matter of fact, one of the other gospel writers actually said that he was afraid what the Jews may do to Jesus' body. So he went and he got his body first, was going to secure it in a place so that people couldn't take advantage of Jesus' body, deface his body, do terrible things. There were even occurrences in which someone would be crucified, and instead of being buried, they would be tossed out for the dogs to eat. And so Joseph, this man of prominence, this man of the council, the Sanhedrin that voted for Jesus to die, for some reason had seen something else in Jesus, either between the time the council met or before that, and was like, I I don't want that to happen to Jesus. And so he goes, and uh, he asks for his body. And Pilate was just like, ah, you know, they, they generally take longer than this. So he calls on the eyewitness account of the centurion, a centurion who likely was his job to oversee these things, to know what dead people looked like, you know, I see dead people. He probably saw them a lot. This wasn't the sixth sense. It was a century. Anyway, sorry. Uh, that movie's still, I'm still shocked by that. I did not see that coming. If you say you saw that coming, you're a liar. But anyway, this guy, he saw dead people on the regular, and so he knew what a dead person looked like. I'm stating that for a reason. And so Pilate asked him, is he really dead? And he's like, yes, he's really dead. Uh, this was likely the same centurion that saw him die and was like, this is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He, he was the son of God. I just watched him die and let go of his spirit. And so when Pilate found out, yes, he's dead, he told Joseph, yes, you may take his body. And so if we read the rest of the Gospels, we also see that there was likely a man named Nicodemus with Joseph. 
Nicodemus and Jesus had already had a meeting in John chapter 3, which leads up to, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. Same conversation, being born again, a lot of things going on, but Nicodemus, a man of prominence, a man of the council, a man, by all regards, should hate Jesus because Jesus was threatening everything about his existence. But Joseph and this man, Nicodemus, they said, we want to take Jesus' body and take care of it. We want to make sure that nothing bad happens to him any further. He's dead now. And so they take him, they put him in this hole uh, in the side of a mountain, most likely. And since they have uh, wealth and prominence, they probably also had some servants. And at some point, they had, it says that he rolled the stone back. Joseph could not have rolled the stone back by himself. It was large, and so he probably had several of his servants or his workers push that stone back. And so, really interesting, at the end of that particular text in verse 47... It says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We already saw these women and a few others mentioned towards the end of the section that we looked at uh, last week. And we talked about, hey, men, you need to be on guard. Men, we fled. We were passive, just like we were in the garden. These women, they took initiative. They were there. The reason I pointed out today, the reason this is important here, is uh, people want to debate the authenticity of the resurrection a great deal. Okay, they want to say that, that possibly, there's no way that it could happen. And they're right, humanly, no way, no chance that it could happen. Okay, and they want to say that the gospel writers made this up. They want to say that uh, the people, the followers of Jesus, his disciples made up this story. Here's one nail in their, their coffins theory right here. They would not have said that women witnessed where Jesus was buried. They wouldn't have used women as eyewitnesses. Why? Because women back then, their opinions, to be honest, they didn't count for anything. They didn't count for anything. That's, the where, that's where the culture was. And so if the gospel writers wanted to fabricate Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' burial, all of those things, they would not have mentioned a couple Marys and some mothers of people. They would have been like, no, 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 uh, this guy of prominence, everybody knows him. He was very popular, had a great beard. He had a name like, you know, I don't know, Bar something. They would have mentioned him. But instead, it was women, women who culturally... They had no say. They had no sway. They had no draw. They had no pull. They had nothing. But what they did have is they had a relationship with Jesus, and they followed, and they watched, and they witnessed. They served. They took care of him, and they saw exactly where he was laid. And these are the people that the gospel writers put in there because these are the people that actually saw where Jesus was laid. This was the valid truth. And so then we go to chapter 16. And so all of this occurred at uh, right before the Sabbath starts. The Sabbath would start at around sundown the day before, likely around 6 p.m. Um, and so Joseph knew that he had to rush to do this, or Jesus would hang on the cross uh, for 24 some odd hours, maybe 27 hours, depending on the time of day. And so he decided that he would go and, and he would pull him down so he didn't have to stay there. And so the women saw where he was buried. And then the next day, or at the end of the Sabbath, we find ourselves in chapter 16. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, or at sundown on the following day, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him the next day, the next morning. And very early on the first day of the week, that would have been Sunday morning, the third day, uh, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And so... These, these women, these collection of women, there were probably more than just the ones that were mentioned here, um, they wanted to do something again that we had already seen occur with Jesus. They just wanted to serve. They wanted to anoint. Even though he was dead now, 
even though he had expired, even though he breathed his last, even though he exclaimed, it is finished, even though he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them for what they know not they do. All of those things, they had said that, they saw him die. They were the ones that stuck around. They didn't scatter like the rest of the sheep, the men. They stuck. They wanted to take care of Jesus one more time. And their way of doing that was the night before they would go and buy the spices and all of those things because what they would do then, kind of like we alluded to before, is when someone would die, they wouldn't do embalming practices. What they would do is they would basically wrap them in cloth, smear them with ointment and spices so that the smell of decomposition would not overwhelm people that would come by the tomb. And then they would wait for that body to decompose until they could collect the bones and put them in the family box. And so these women... They loved Jesus, they adored Jesus, they had served Jesus, they had provided for Jesus, they had been his disciples, they had been all of those things in the sense of followers and learners, and in this case, they were like, this Jesus, he's dead, and we want to take care of him one more time. And they went with such passion and such haste, they forgot a detail. They forgot there's no way we're going to be able to move that rock. Several years ago when I was, uh, we were still living in um, next door to hell, a place called Columbia, um, I'm kidding. If you're from Columbia, you, you know exactly what I mean. But anyway, we were living there. We were in school. We were working down there. And um, I, I love to fish and fly fish. And I hadn't been able to go to a real trout stream in a long time. And, and I had a day. And so me and a buddy decided we were going to drive to North Carolina, spend some time in some waters that I knew pretty well. And I was so excited. And I told him, I'm like, hey, you don't need to bring anything except waders. I'll take care of a fly rod reel. I'll take care of all the flies. I'll take care of everything else. You just show up. And I was so excited. I was so excited, we got there to the river, and I opened the lift gate on my Jeep, and I realized that I had left everything I had promised for him. I had left his rod, I had left his reel, I had left everything. He had his waders, but I was so excited. I was so excited to fish on, like, you know, late December, freezing, snowing weather in a river. I just, I forgot his rod. So for the whole day, I would make three casts, and then I would hand him a rod, and he would make three casts. Very almost unproductive day did catch the biggest brown of December for me. But anyway, like, I got so excited because I was so ready to be there. In my haste, I forgot a major detail. These women were so excited to serve Jesus. They were so ready just to take care of him one more time. They forgot that there was a big rock that was going to prevent them from even getting in, prevent them from seeing Jesus. Verse 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us uh, from the entrance of the tomb? Verse 4, and looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. I love the way Mark writes. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So they went in haste. They were prepared to serve. They were ready to take care of Jesus one more time. In their haste, they forgot about the stone. But blessed or lucky for them, someone had beat them there. It says in, in Mark's account, when he's talking about what they saw, it says they walk in, they see a young man sitting in white robes. We read the other Gospels, and we know that it wasn't just a man sitting in white robes. It was actually a dazzling angel. That's one of those words that pops up, dazzling. We don't use that nearly enough, but the Gospel writers did. In many cases, and usually following the appearance of an angel, there was also a phrase from that angel as further proof. It was, hey, don't be, don't be scared. If it was just a dude, if it was just a guy in a white linen cloth, he wouldn't have had to say that. But in this case, he's like, don't, don't be afraid. 
I know I'm bright. I'm really bright. But don't be afraid. Do not be alarmed. And then in Mark's account, he says, um, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Uh, in Luke, my, my favorite phrase of the resurrection, he just asks, he's like, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. The interesting thing about the resurrection account, and we'll continue with this passage in a second, is that multiple times in the course of this ministry, Jesus had told them what was going to happen. He had told them. He had told them what would happen. He had told them 21 plus times. He had made a reference to in three days or on the third day. 21 times. Sometimes it was a bit veiled. Sometimes it was, at one point it was about the temple, which we had talked about, which was one of the reasons he was crucified. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days or on the third day. He had said that. He had, he had made an illusion about Jonah. He had talked about how Jonah spent three days in the belly. He would spend three days. And, but he told them over and over and over. And still, still they were shocked and blown away. And that's okay. I think a lot of times we read that and we're like, how could you be so surprised? Because this should not have happened. Like when we read the resurrection account, like I think there needs to be, just like these women experienced, there needs to be some, man, some crazy awe, some crazy astonishment, a little bit of fear, all of those things there. But these women, they walk in expecting to find a body, but they were seeking the living among the dead, and he was not there. He had risen. And even though they had been told many, many times, they still need to see it. It says they walk in, they, they see this man sitting there dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Look, see the place. See the rock that he was laid. It's likely that the linen cloths that Joseph and, and Nicodemus had wrapped him in, they were just still sitting there. No body, just cloths. So he walked out. He walked out. But then this is what this angel, this messenger, because that's what angels were. They were messengers, verse 7. He says, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Interesting phrases there. We talked about Peter. We talked about uh, during Mark chapter 14, when Jesus predicted what Peter would do in his astonishment, 1427, he said, all of you, the shepherd's going to be struck, you will scatter, you will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Continuing on, uh, he, he even told them, he's like, but I'll go before you to Galilee. I'll go before you. Like in this place right here, they, they knew what they had been told, but still to see it was crazy. But after being told that, Peter was also told right around the same time that you're going to deny me. And he was like, nope, even if I have to die with you, not going to happen. We talked about Peter and his restoration. And it's interesting here, just kind of a note. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but he said, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Really interesting. Maybe at that point, Peter didn't even consider himself one of his followers anymore because of what he had done. And, and it also points to that fact that what we need to see happen is what Jesus did when he meets him on that beach after Peter had returned to his previous way of life, of fishing, doing what he did before, 
And Jesus just sitting down and asking him, hey, do you, do you love me? Yeah, 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 I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah, Jesus, yes, I love you. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why do you keep asking? Just feed my sheep. Just the restoration, the returning Peter to understanding, hey, you denied me. Yes, you are not your sin. You're still my follower. Just do as you've been called. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, just as he had told them in chapter 14. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled the tomb, trembling in astonishment, for, for an astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's where Mark ends, right there. And it does seem rather abrupt. Like, it does seem like an odd place to stop. But in the beginning, when we started this 18 months ago, the thing that we said is uh, what Mark points us to is this Jesus that we so desperately need. And Mark accomplished that. Like time and time again, Mark pointed to the fact that, that this Jesus is unlike anyone else, that this Jesus has what we need, that no one else can provide this. This Jesus is, in fact, what we need and just what we need. If we look at the resurrection and we look at even Mark's account, even though he didn't include the rest of the days, but the other Gospels do, and that's the beauty of Scripture. He inspired some to write this, some to write this, some to write this. They give us the whole picture. But even if we just read to here and we just looked at the proof of the resurrection from Mark's perspective, we would still see that Jesus is all we need, all that we need. And this is, this is one of the biggest things that it points to. The first is that he can be trusted. You say, well, how does this tell me that he can be trusted? Well, uh, just like I said a minute ago, even in the simplest scenario of this particular place, uh, it points to the fact that he was a savior of his word. He had told them in chapter 14, he's like, number one, you're all going to scatter. Okay, I'm going to be struck. You're going to scatter. Peter, you're going to deny me. Um, but afterwards, after all that, I'll meet you in Galilee. Same thing the angel just told, just told these Marys, this group of Marys. They would have been a great band, the Marys. But anyway, um, told them. And guess where Jesus did meet them? In fact, he met them in Galilee, exactly where he said. Even in his death, even in his resurrection, even when the chaos seemed to be out of control, which is what chaos is, Jesus was still very much in control. And the things that he said would happen did happen in the simplest sense. He said, I will meet you here. That's where he met them, right there. And like I said before, he can be trusted because he, he pointed out that, but he pointed out more. Through the course of his conversations with the disciples, like I said, he alluded to the fact that on the third day or in three days, he would rise 21 times in the Gospels. 21 times. And guess what he did on the third day? He walked out of the grave. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He's not dead. He was. He's not anymore. He's gone. 21 times. And that doesn't even count the other times in which he was quite clear. I'll be handed over into uh, the hands of sinners. I'll be tried. I'll be convicted. I'll, all of those things will be happening. I'll be beaten. He told them verbatim what would happen. As a matter of fact, we even read a passage from 700 previous years ago. And Jesus was the Logos, the very word of God walking amongst them. That was him speaking 700 years ago through the, the prophet Isaiah. And like he said it then. He said it to the disciples. And guess what happened? Exactly what he said. He can be trusted. He said, I'll meet you in Galilee. He met him in Galilee. He said, on the third day, I'll rise. On the third day, that he, he rose. He predicted his death. He predicted his scattering. He predicted uh, their scattering. He predicted Peter's denial. He predicted his resurrection. Every single one came true. 
Every single one. There is no 1-900 number. Or they doesn't even exist anymore. Remember the, the psychics that used to be on TV? Yeah, we'd say, dial 1-900, dollar 99 first unit, 399 thereafter. Never called one of those. But there's not a single one of those people that can do what Jesus did in that moment. You're like, wow, you're showing your age. Yep, sorry. Jesus predicted every little last detail, and they all came true. All came true. That's the Jesus I need. Then, not only did he say what was going to happen, and it did. Not only did he say, well, you're going to meet me, and he did. Not only did he say what was going to happen to the disciples, and that all came true. Not only that, but the Jesus that we need is the only one that can do this. He beat death. Like, and he didn't just beat it a little bit. Like, I say it a lot, like he kicked it in the teeth and got up and walked out and said, grave, you can't keep me here. He conquered death. Of all the things I need, I need that. I need that. Like, I don't need immortality in this body, but I do need immortality when it comes to my life with God. Like, I need that, and there's no other one that could do that. And as a matter of fact, Jesus was the only one, the Jesus that we need. And we know that he can do it because we saw him do it. He conquered death. On his own two legs, he walked out of that grave. No one carried him. No one led him out. He got up and he walked out. I need that. You need that. Because according to the rest of Scripture, what we read is that every one of us, we're stillborn. We're born dead because of sin. Like John 17, 3, we can define by contrast John 17, 3 in the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's talking to Jesus and he's saying, all those that you will give to me will be mine. For this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and your son whom you've sent. Eternal life is the knowledge of God. The absence thereof is death. When I'm born, I don't know God. I can't know God. There's a barrier between me and him that I cannot tear down. One sin would build that wall. And I've committed way more than one. And Jesus, in his body, in his spirit, in his actions, in the moment, tore it down. And got up and walked out. And he said, death will no longer hold you. The separation that's been brought by sin, which is spiritual death for eternity without me, will not hold you anymore. He walked out, so can I. I need that. You need that. All of humanity needs that. Romans tells us that there is none righteous, not a single one, not the best of us. For we've all sinned and missed the mark that is God. We all need one that can conquer death. And Jesus did it because we couldn't. We couldn't. John 17, 3, then Romans 6, 6 through 11. I've actually been in Romans myself lately, and I even sent this out to a couple of the guys that I keep in touch with, our elders and my, my best friends too. I've, I've just like I've been reading this, and it's blowing me away. And in Romans chapter 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin or dead for one who has died and has been set free for one who has died has been set free from sin now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again 
Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, we, us, also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus got up and walked out of that grave, he said, I live, you can too. I live, you can too. And then it's attached, if you just believe. If I just believe, I can live. And not just live, but actually live with God, not just in heaven, but now. Now. As a result of covenant relationship. That one party's faithfulness is not dependent upon the other. Like me being faithful doesn't declare or determine whether or not God's going to be faithful. God will always be faithful, even when I'm not. That's the kind of life I need. Because I'm flawed, I'm broken, I'm cracked. Jesus is not. When I'm faithless, he's faithful. When I'm faithful, he's faithful. When I don't know where I'm going, he's faithful. He, he died once. He doesn't need to die again. Because his death was that good and that big. That's sufficient. The Jesus we need is the Jesus that can be, in fact, trusted to do what he says he will do. And he's the Jesus that walked out of the grave. I need that. You need that. We need that. But here's the other thing. Everyone in this city needs that. And we're not going to stop saying this. Everyone in this city needs that. Your neighbors, they need that. Your coworkers, they need that. Your children, they need that. Your parents, maybe, they need that. No, maybe, I'm just saying, you know, maybe they already have it, but, you know, anyway. And so just like these women, who I love, where it just says, uh, now after the angel said, you're seeking the living among the dead, he's not here, he's alive, he's risen. They say, therefore, or as a result of that, go, tell. Start with his disciples and Peter. That holds true for us, too. If this is the Jesus that we need, the Jesus that we've realized that can be trusted, that has done what he said that he will do, including save us from the eternal wrath that we so rightfully deserve, if this Jesus is the Jesus that we need because he conquered death and I need life and I can't buy it for myself, then he's also the Jesus that we need to talk about. He's the Jesus that we need to share. Because we reference it a lot, for faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. That's our job. That's our responsibility. That's our role. In light of what Jesus has done, in light of us realizing that he's the only one that we need, we also have to realize that everyone else, outside of the kingdom, outside of the family, they need Jesus too. And we tell them. We tell them. And maybe this is a stretch. Maybe it's not. If it is, I apologize. I think we do it even though we're astonished even though we're a little afraid, even though we're a bit overwhelmed. These women, I'm sure, they were asking a little bit to themselves, what just happened? What just happened? There was a shiny dude sitting where Jesus should have been. I was scared to death. Started sweating a lot. He told me, chill out. You don't have to sweat so much. Don't be afraid. I mean, that's what I would have done. I don't know about you. And then he said, he's not here. Go and tell. And it says they left. They were scared. They were astonished. They were D, all of the above. But we know in light of the rest of the Gospels, do you know what they did? They went and told. They went and told. They did as they were 
told to do, they told. Proverbs 1.7 says that fear is the beginning of understanding or knowledge or wisdom. I think it's okay to be a little afraid of what Jesus has done. I think that's okay to be a little bit astonished. As a matter of fact, I think it's okay to be a lot afraid, a lot astonished, a lot overwhelmed, and speak anyway. As a matter of fact, I think that's probably the place we should be because this ain't normal. No one's ever done it since. No one ever did it before. No one will ever do it again. And it shouldn't be looked at without a little bit of, oh my goodness, what just happened? What just happened? So I leave you with like a couple questions. Number one, does the resurrection astonish you? Because I want to tell you, it should. It really should. It should blow your mind. It should blow my mind every time I read it. And the days that it does, the days that it does not, I need to seek it. Say, God, let me think well on this so that it does actually blow my mind because this should not have happened. My response should be very much like the woman's. And granted, we hear this story a lot. We talk about it a lot. And we're going to talk about it a lot. So sometimes maybe we do get a little numb to it. So if you can say the resurrection doesn't astonish me, maybe we just need to ask God, God, blow my mind. Show me the reality of the impossibility of what you've done. Show me the reality of the impossibility of what you've done. Blow my mind. Because until we're at that place, we probably won't talk about it. It'll just be a thought at best. But when it becomes a place where it amazes us that this is the way Jesus invited us into family, that this is the way Jesus offered sanctification, reconciliation, and salvation in reverse order, like once we think about it there, then, then we're going to be very prone to speak of it because it amazes us, and it should. And then I'll ask this second question. This might not apply to everybody. Um, what are you going to do with it? Like maybe today, you've, you've never, maybe you've never really thought critically about the, the resurrection and what it means to you and what Jesus offered you through that, his trustworthy nature, the fact that he can offer you life the way that he displayed it. Maybe you've never thought about it. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? This is what I would urge you to do with it. I can't convince you uh, to give your life to Christ, but I would, I would strongly encourage you. Ask God, what does this mean? What does it mean for me to follow you? What does it mean for me to have life in you? What does it mean for me to be astonished with what you've done? What does it mean for me to believe in you? And you want to ask those questions, and you don't know what the answers look like, and you don't even know how to go to God? Hey, I would love to have coffee with you this week. My wife would love to have coffee with you this week. Neil and Lindsay, Andrew, when he gets back from India, Lexi, would love to have coffee with you this week. Zach and Becky, love to have coffee, or even not coffee. Tea's fine. But we'd love to help you parse through these questions. And there's about two dozen other people that would love to as well. What are you going to do with it? God, we love you. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you use your word to make us uh, not better, but more like Christ. God, we thank you that even looking at, at Mark's to-the-point description of you walking out of the grave, we can see that because of what he says, we can know that you're trustworthy. 
And God, we can know that you're exactly what we need, the life that we need. God, I pray for those of us who have trusted in your name, who have believed in your name. God, I pray that we'd be amazed with the resurrection to the point that we have to talk about it, that it has to come up, that it still amazes us frequently. And God, for those sitting here who have never trusted in you as just what they need, as their Savior, and you alone as their Savior, God, I pray that you would speak loudly. I pray that you would overcome their doubt. I pray that you would be the one that uh, puts their fears aside and allows them to trust in you fully, even though it's scary, even though it's a bit crazy. I pray that you would call them your child because they trust in you and they believe in you. And God, as a family, if we can speak uh, those words of truth, God, that you have granted us through your spirit, through your son, through your word, God, I pray you give us great opportunity and boldness to do so. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Uh, thank you for allowing us to do what he started. I pray that we do it well. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.